So one of the things that my wife Becky likes to do is she likes to go to antique stores. Antique stores are not my favorite thing to do. They're not even on my sort of okay thing to do. But I go to antique store because I try to be a good husband and go with my wife. She kind of finds them a relaxing thing to do. So every few months I'll say, sure, let's go pop in an antique store. One of my problems with an antique store is the fact that the toys that I played with as a kid are now considered antiques. And I don't know how that happened, that I'm old enough that my childhood toys are now antiques. So I usually get a little frustrated when I go in those stores and I see my childhood toys as antiques, and even the Tupperware that my mom used is now considered antiques. And I'm surprised that happened. But a few weeks ago, we went to one of her favorite antique stores, and I actually had a really good time. I actually saw something in the store that brought back really good memories of being seven years old. I was looking at one of the items, and for a little while, I could, ex- I could feel my emotions as a seven-year-old kid. And what I saw was the 1974 Sears Christmas catalog, other known as the Wish Book. And as a kid, we lived for the day that that Sears Christmas catalog would come out. For some of you younger people not knowing what I'm talking about, just imagine Amazon in print. And you would come home and there would be that catalog on the kitchen table and you knew Christmas was actually going to be a reality. And there was nothing more fun than to be a kid and to look at that catalog and figure out what you want for Christmas. Now that catalog brought you a lot of joy, but it also brought a little sadness because you realized you can't have everything that you want in that catalog. There's not even a chance you're going to get everything in that catalog. So you need to be a little bit strategic. See, the catalog made you realize that there's a big gap between what you want and what you're going to get. There's a very big gap between what you desire and what you're actually going to receive. And the hard reality for Christmas as a kid is to realize that you're not going to get everything you want or you desire. And the other hard reality for a kid is to recognize you're going to need somebody to help you to get those things that you really desire in the catalog. And to be honest, I think that catalog, shopping in a Christmas catalog, is preparation for what your adult life is going to look like. That's still going to remain the same, that you're not going to get everything you want. And as followers of Jesus, we know we're going to have to depend on Christ to get what we really desire. But when you're a kid, there's a little chance you're going to get something in that catalog hopefully more than one thing, maybe two or three, but you're going to have to be strategic and you're going to have to look at that catalog and you're going to decide what in that catalog is really going to satisfy you. You don't just want to pick something quickly. You want to make sure in that catalog what you're going to put on your Christmas list is what you actually want. Will it give you more than just a day's worth of activity and fun? Will you pick something that actually long-term would satisfy you? So the question of what do you really want is very important when you're looking at a catalog. And actually the question of what do you really want, what is going to satisfy you is a question that we find ourselves having to ask ourselves the rest of our life. See, last week I shared with you the story of my sexuality. I talked to you about my journey with same-sex attraction. I talked to you about the fact that I'm not straight. And I shared with you that God's goal is not to make everybody straight. Instead, God's goal is for every person, regardless of their orientation, is to steward their sexuality in a way that honors God. 
See, at the end of the day, what doesn't really matter what label is attached to you. What matters is how do you supervise your sexual desires? That's what is really important. And I know that sharing my story, it does raise a lot of questions. It raises a lot of controversy. But it also raises a lot of curiosity because I'm also married to a woman. And a lot of people wonder, how in the world does that happen? So Becky and I want to talk about that a little bit today. I told you last week, I promise that I'll answer any question that you might have. I promise that I'll be completely honest with my story and with my journey and what life is like for me. And now I want to say, we'll answer any questions. What is life like for us? Because we want to answer your questions. And I know some of your questions would probably make you feel uncomfortable and some of them might make me feel uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, we want to answer those questions rather than have people make assumptions or just wonder. Because again, I want to make conversations about sex and sexuality and brokenness and shame normal in the church. That we're able to have these conversations without embarrassment. That we're able to have these conversations without feeling ashamed. And also that people that are dealing with the brokenness would find church a good place to have these conversations. So we're going to talk a little bit more of what life is like for Becky and I, but the truth is, what do you want and what do you desire are extremely complicated questions and answers. It's hard to figure out what you really want. It's kind of hard to figure out your desires. So I find it very interesting that the very first words of Jesus in the book of John is, what do you want? book of John begins and the, John the Baptist is there and he has his people following him and then Jesus enters and suddenly two of John the Baptist's followers start following Jesus. And Jesus turns around and he looks at these two men and he says, what do you want? That's interesting. I find it interesting that Jesus' first question wasn't, what is your name or where are you from? His first question is, what do you want? It's also interesting because Jesus doesn't look at these two guys and say, this is what I want. This is what I want you to do. Jesus begins his conversation with these two potential followers, and he says, what do you want? See, Jesus knows that if we can understand what we really want, it's really going to help us in life. See, Jesus is looking at these two guys, and he wants them to understand, what do you really want out of life? And what do you really want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? I think some of us really don't know. And that's not bad. But I think what we all learn through life is sometimes what our real desires are or what we really want is much deeper than our first response. But that's the hard thing about wants and desires, that you kind of got to think about what you really want, then you got to go a little bit deeper, and then you got to go a little bit deeper. Because sometimes when we really are honest and we really search ourselves, what we're really looking for is love, acceptance. We want to belong. We want people to listen to us. We want to feel valued. Sometimes it's hard to get in touch with those are the things we're really looking for. And Jesus wants his followers to understand what you're really looking for because once you understand that, you realize 
that Jesus is the only person that can fulfill those needs in your life. See, sometimes we think, oh, I want a new car, or we need a new house, or I need a new job, and those are all good things. We all need to live in a house or drive a car. But sometimes what's really motivating us is acceptance, or we want to fit in. And sometimes Jesus is saying, what do you really, really, really want? Because I want to meet those needs for you. So we all have to pay attention to our desires and our wants. But we all have to pay extra attention to our sexual desires and wants. Because as we all know, not every sexual desire and every sexual attraction that you have is going to actually be good for you. But we know there's a lot of really good godly sexual desires and attractions that he gives to us. And usually what we find ourselves is in the middle of an intersection with a lot of desires and wants and attractions coming towards us. And our job is to kind of figure out which ones are godly and which ones are not. Which ones do we follow and which ones do we have to deny? And it's hard because we often have to look past our first impulse or our first reaction to decide what we really want. See, a lot of people look at me and they would look at my sexual ethic and they would say I'm not being true to myself. They would say since I'm denying some of my attractions, some of my feelings, then I'm not really being authentic to who I am and how I am wired. And then in return they would say that I'm not really giving Becky what she really wants. Some people would look at me and say this isn't really a marriage because of our different orientations. And I understand that. It does sound logical. But what I've discovered, and I think many of you have also discovered, is actually the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to who we really are. That the more we draw away from some of our desires and our attractions, actually the closer we get to who we are really created to be. See, it's so important that we understand that because it breaks down the idea that if I follow Jesus or if I give up some of my desires and my attractions, I'm going to lose my identity or who I really am. But Jesus is always invitation is to always to follow him and to give up things that aren't good for us so we can discover who we truly are meant and created to be. I think Dr. Kurt Thompson says it well when he says, the idea is not for us to be dissolved into God, meaning we lose ourselves, but the goal is to be united with God. So the more connected we are to Christ, the more we discover who we really were created to be. That's how we find who we truly are, is through our connection with Christ, and we understand who we're really created to be. So today, as we continue on, I want to spend the rest of the service with Becky joining me up here because we want to kind of share our story and what life is like for us. Do you want to hold that? Or? Yep. So I asked Becky to come up and... Is this, is this you know... Oh, we're, okay, I'll turn it off. Oh, yeah. Okay. Are we in the picture tray together? All right. 
So I asked Becky to come up here because, as you know, we're married. And some of you probably have questions like, how in the world does this work? So we want to share those questions. We want to share the questions that we anticipate from you. And so I'm going to ask Becky some questions. She's going to ask me some questions. And hopefully this goes well. What do you think, Trey? All right. All right. So some of you probably know a little bit of our, our story. I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, and after I came to Christ, I kind of had this big desire to plant a church. And so I was figuring out what seminary to go to, and I thought, well, that'll be easy. I'll go to Calvin, or I'll go to one that's close by. But I read a book. Which book did I read? No, it wasn't that. I read a book by Becky's dad, Dr. C. Peter Wagner. And I read a book by him, and he was a professor at Fuller Seminary, and I thought, I like this guy, so I'm going to go to the seminary. <laughs> so, well, I did well. I married his daughter. So when I got to Fuller Seminary, this was about 30 years ago, my goal was to take all of his classes, but I couldn't take them my first year, because you know, I have to take a lot of those prerequisites. And so I never met her dad my first year of seminary, but I had a friend of mine on campus, his name is Wayne, and he knew Becky's dad. So one Sunday afternoon, I'm walking through campus, and Wayne pulls over and says to me, hey, come with me, we're going to go to Anaheim for a week, because Becky's dad's doing a conference. He said, I'll get you into the conference for free, and I'll introduce you to Peter Wagner. So I thought, all right. I'll take a week off from school. So I went back to my apartment, got all my stuff, and Wayne and I drove to Anaheim, California and spent the week. And so the conference started on a Monday. And so Monday afternoon, we, Wayne and I were going to go get dinner. And Wayne said, hey, let me find, find some new people that we'll go to dinner with. So Wayne finds Becky and sends her over to meet me. And Wayne, being the matchmaker, is like, well, I'll just let them to go to dinner by themselves. So Becky and I had our first blind date that was arranged. And we ate at McDonald's. Not a best way to start, but hey, we ate at McDonald's, but it was literally across the street from Disneyland in California. So, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. So we met each other at about five o'clock on a Monday night, and we talked probably late in the evening, and then at night went back to my hotel, and the next morning I got up and we started talking again, and by 10 in the morning I told her my entire story. So I know some people look at Becky and they're like, um, why would you ever even entertain the idea of getting married to a guy like me? And I, made, I guess my question is, what did you think of my whole same-sex attraction story? And what did you think of my whole narrative of being ex-gay? There you go. It was fun, isn't it? <laughs> I, um, first of all, I want to clarify that he went back to his hotel alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah he did. Good. Yeah. <clears throat> I think, Jack, that by that time... Trey, it's really loud up here. Is, that, is it loud for you all out there? Or is it good? Okay. So I think at that time um, that you actually shared that part of your story with me, it really wasn't a big deal. And the reason that it wasn't a big deal for me by that time is because I'd already spent several hours learning a lot of other things about Jack. I had, and during those hours, I learned that Jack really was a Christ follower, that he put Christ first, that he loved Christ, that he had been on a journey that had brought him to a place that, um, that that was probably the most important thing of your life. I also learned that Jack not only followed Christ, but that he wanted to commit his life 
to following Christ and to being a minister of the gospel. And in fact, that's why he was in seminary, that he was in seminary to eventually plant a church. And that resonated with me. See, from the time I was a little girl, something inside of me felt that I would one day be a pastor's wife. Although I got to admit, I didn't look for the job and I didn't want the job, but I just felt that that was what eventually was going to be. And some, so, so his story was sparking something in me already by the time that he felt comfortable to share this, uh, this deep, dark part of himself that he considered to be so ugly. And I remember, in fact, during that com- first conversation that we also had an opportunity, we decided to pray together. And during that time of us praying together, I, I, I also noticed that we approached God the same way. The, the way that we chose to pray and the, and the language that we were using was very similar. So there was quite a bit that I think was connecting us at that time. Um, we were in some, and frankly, I had some things to share with him about my past. I had some, some brokenness that I needed to share with him too if this was going the way that it seemed to be going. And I have to admit, I kind of had a heads up of the way that it was going because um, I, I think I've shared with many of you that I, I had a dream about a week prior to Jack and I, and I meeting. And in that dream, I was living in Colorado at the time, and I dreamed that, that the man that God had for me was going to be at that conference in California. I knew about that conference because it was my uh, conference my folks put on, and there were going to be about 1,000 people there, and I, I chose not to go. But when I had that dream, I thought, I'd better get to that conference and see if, this is, if, see if there's anything to this thing. So I, I went to the conference, and sure enough, on that very first day, I met Jack. And so Jack was literally the man of my dreams. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> but it took a lot more than a dream for me to know that Jack really was the person that God had for me. Um, it, it, it took that conversation, but it took a lot more than even that conversation. We went on and we dated for a couple of... Oh, I, I, let me back up a minute. Another th- reason I think that, that your story didn't flip me out was because you and I were both very familiar and living in what was very popular in the early 90s, which was the ex-gay narrative. And that is really how you presented yourself, how you felt that you were, because you'd been through the reparative therapy, and that is what you believed yourself to be at that time. And I had enough of an understanding of reparative therapy and ex-gay kind of a narrative going on in my mind that it let me say that the one positive thing, at least for me, that that whole reparative ex-gay narrative brought, at least for me, was that it didn't limit possibilities. That the, um, the belief was that if you were able to present your sexuality before God or your brokenness or whatever it was, that in the hands of God, that you were no longer disqualified from things such as marriage. So I'll say that is one positive thing that came out of that at least for me. So when I heard that Jack had real, that that had been part of Jack's journey, that that's where he was at, it didn't dawn on me that he wasn't qualified for um, a traditional heterosexual marriage. But it took a little bit more than that to convince me. We, we dated for the next two years, and in those two years, um, it, in fact, we actually even broke up at one point during that time. It wasn't just smooth and easy going the entire time. 
But, but the more I got to know Jack, the more I realized that, yes, I really did think that this was the man of my dreams, um, despite, despite what he had shared with me. And um, also, I, I, you know, he, I think another huge factor for me in pursuing marriage for him was that I had, I had made a commitment to God. Uh, I, I didn't have a good track record of picking men at all in my life and had come through some really difficult things because of that and so I, I spent a couple of years back away from dating away from any kind of relationship and just spent time with the Lord and during that time I committed that uh, when God did bring someone into my life that the people who were really important to me that my parents that uh, mentors who had poured themselves into my life would also recognize that this was God's person for me. And uh, to a person, they all agreed, yes, Jack is, the, and they had gotten to know Jack over those two years, and they all agreed, yes, this is, this, we really see that this is the guy for you. So that was a, con that was a further confirmation for me that this was the right way to go. You know, I came um, to know a, a, a quote from Tim Keller. In fact, it's a, it's a quote that I've put in your notes there that, I think really describes my process during this time, even knowing uh, that there was a difference and that there was just some things, maybe some hurdles to, to cross, but nonetheless. And this is the quote from Tim Keller. It says, what does it mean to fall in love? It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. And I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you are taking to the throne. And that truly does describe what that time and that period was like. I had fallen in love with Jack in this way because I wanted to partner with him in his journey to the throne. So, Jack, what was the process that you went through in deciding to, to marry me? Well, that's a good question. When I met Becky, I, I didn't think I would, I wasn't looking for a wife. I wasn't anticipating getting married. I never like tossed the idea out, but I just didn't think it would happen. So, I mean, I was living in LA at the time. I had a lot of good friends in seminary. I'd spent, you know, just, I didn't feel the need for a wife at that moment, so I wasn't even entertaining the idea. But when I met Becky, from the minute I met her, I pretty much knew that God was saying, that's the one. And then I think he had to do that for me because I think I totally would have ignored if it was just left on my own. I think on my own, if I had to pick it out, I would have been too scared and saying this is never going to work for me. So I really needed the nudge from God to say, that is the one for you. But for me, the, the whole romance part of dating and the whole, that whole part is just kind of awkward for me. That is just kind of a part I don't really do well in. But we connected really well just talking and hanging out, and immediately we started talking, and I felt real connection to Becky. We had a lot of the same interest. I loved how she talked, and we had desire to serve the Lord. And so when I went, so after we got done talking that first night, and I went back to my hotel, and I'm thinking, I really like her. I really like spending time with her. This, is, this could have potential. I thought, well, there's there's a good way to figure out if this has any potential. I'll tell her my story. So 
So yeah, we got together the next morning. I thought, okay, I'll tell my story to her and then she'll run. And she didn't. She was just like, oh, okay. I was like, really? That's all the reaction I'm going to get out of you? I was like, that wasn't a big deal. So I figured, well, maybe this does have potential. So we just kept talking and we have more connection. But after the conference, I went back to my apartment in Pasadena and she went to her apartment in Colorado. So that was a little long distance dating, but we talked a lot and we just became really close, really quick. And she was kind of like, became just a person I felt safe with, a person I felt secure with, a person that I could share, you know, the anything in my life with, and she was going to love me. So I thought, well, this is pretty good. I'm not going to stop this thing. So that's what I felt. So what was it like being married once we did get married? Oh, that was, that was, yeah. Yeah, that, that got interesting really quickly. See, I loved Becky. I was attracted to Becky. I wanted to be with Becky. That was never, that, that was solid. But see, part of the ex-gay narrative, narrative and part of the reparative therapy is that the closer you draw to Jesus, the, close, the more same-sex, opposite-sex attractions you're going to gather, that you become straight. I mean, I was literally told by a PhD in psychology that my same-sex attractions could even happen as late as my honeymoon night. So I'm just following Jesus, like, all right, this is going to happen. We'll get married and boom. That didn't happen. So that was a little bit of a surprise honeymoon night, but um, <laughs> yeah, for both of us. But, um, but it never changed my love for Becky. It never changed my desire for Becky. It never changed the fact that I wanted to be in covenant with her. What changed for me was I entered into a whole, I entered into a whole nother, whole nother level of shame. Because once again, You know, once again, I'm sitting here going, what did I do wrong? Yeah. And I mean, that's, I think that's the hard part of the reparative therapy. That's the hard part of the promise that they made that you're going to become straight is because when you don't, then you take the blame on yourself. And you have to sit there and say, well, I must not be that good of a Christian. So I think for me, that was the hard part of our relationship, having to deal with this other level of shame. And as you are probably all aware, the thing about shame is shame always drives you into isolation. And once you're in isolation, it's like, you know, you're just target for the enemy, just lies to you continually. So I always said with Becky, you know, now that we look back, our marriage was perfect and ideal as long as we had our clothes on. That, I was comfortable. That worked really well. The minute the clothes came off, it's like all my shame started to speak and, and my anxiety and my fact that I felt insignificant. I felt like I was disqualified. That's when the part of our marriage was just complicated. So that was just kind of a tricky part of just kind of navigating those years. And, and just, I think, you know, the thing about shame too is after a while with shame, you don't even know you have it. It just kind of sneaks, and you just, you're dealing with it, but you're not really even sure what it, it is. So I think that's what the hard part of marriage for so long was me. was like It was hard because I loved Becky. I desired her. I wanted to be with her. I wanted to be intimate with her, but I had this whole shame going on. Like, you're not that good of a Christian because you didn't become straight yet. There's still something wrong with you. And so I'm trying in isolation, try to fix that, and that just made it crazy.
Well, the fact that we're standing up here today having this conversation, obviously something changed. Something what changed? did change. Well, I mean, I think I shared some of this last week. What changed for me was that the Lord literally woke me up in the middle of the night. And as one night, um, I, the Lord woke me up and said to me, do you love me? The same words he spoke to Peter in the book of John after he was restoring Peter. He said to Peter, do you love me? And I knew when Jesus was asking me that question, he was saying to me, would you surrender everything that you have to me? And that was really hard for me to hear because I knew what he was saying is, would you surrender your sexuality to me? Would you be really honest with how you still are right now? And I thought, oh boy, that's going to be hard. So I... Um, so literally that happened to me 2.30 at night in bed and I just wrestled in the morning like, no, I'm not going to do this. I am not. This is off limits. You are asking me way too much. But by 6.30 in the morning, he won. And I thought, all right, I'll do it. So we got the kids off to go to school and I sat down with Becky and I had to say, hey, this is kind of what's going on in me. And so that was tough admitting to her, but at the same time, there was just this freedom of recognizing this lie I was believing was a lie. See, what happened to me the night before is that I was at a conference on, uh, with Dr. Preston Sprinkle on homosexuality in the church and how we deal with it. And part of the conference, what he does is he, he gets a panel on stage of different people that experience LGBT, that are part of the LGBTQ community. Either, either they're a parent or they might be a child or a person actively engaged. And so whatever, there's all different people that represent the LGBTQ community. And so I'm at the conference and one of the pastors that I know from Grand Rapids, he's going to walk on stage and share. And I thought, now that's interesting. I wonder what he's going up there for. And I thought, oh, I didn't know why. And suddenly he's talking and sharing. I'm like, whoa, he's going to share about his own same-sex attraction. And I thought, what an, what an idiot. What an absolute jerk. Why would you share that with this group of a thousand people? Don't you know that's just the worst thing in the world you could do? And so while he's getting up there and he's going to share his story, I'm sweating bullets, praying like, God, make him stop talking. He's going to regret it in the morning. And I just thought to myself the rest of the day, what a stupid thing that he did. And it was that night that God woke me up and said, I want you to do the same thing. So it was at that point I realized how much shame I was still carrying with me. And so that's why, um, so that's what really changed is just being honest and just recognizing that this whole reparative therapy narrative was actually not really truthful at all. And it was just all based on one big assumption. And so I think what really changed for me and what brought us to this place is the fact that I dealt with my shame. And the beautiful thing about shame is this. When you enter into shame, you go into isolation. And the only way you get out of isolation is in community. And that's exactly what you see what God did with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. The shame brought him into isolation. And so what's the first question that God asked Adam and Eve is where are you? Because that's how you get out of shame. When God looks for you. But if you're going to get out of shame, you have to get out in community. 
You have to rely on other people to support you and to listen to you and talk to you and to be with you. And that, again, goes to one such a desire I have for churches to be able to have this conversation is you can only heal from shame in community. And sometimes we want people to heal from shame in isolation, and it's just not going to work. So I think that's the difference. What happened for me is just to get rid of that layer of shame that I was dealing with. And part of the lie that I really had to deal with was the fact that um, the Western idea often of marriage is that marriage is all about sex and attraction. We kind of sell that in America marriage is sex and attraction and I think a lot of men grow up with the idea that thinking marriage is sex and attraction and conquest and I would listen to that narrative and I'd say I don't fit in that at all but the truth is marriage is about commitment and it's about intimacy and sex never equals commitment and attraction never equals intimacy And as I began to realize that I was much more qualified for marriage in in a a mixed orientation marriage than I realized because I knew commitment and I knew intimacy. But how my brain is wired, I get to intimacy probably a little bit different from a typical person. But we always had commitment and we always had this desire for intimacy. I just really kind of lacked a lot of just the, the conquest and the sex, and that attraction that a lot of guys have. So that's kind of a little bit what changed. And so I think a lot of people ask me, they want to know what was it like for me to figure out, okay, you're never going to be straight. They're going to have to live with the fact that you're always going to be same-sex attracted, but yet I'm to you know, submit my sexuality on a daily basis to Christ. They ask you, what was it like when you figured out that I'm not straight? On the one hand, I wasn't surprised. It actually explained quite a bit, and I'm, I was grateful for that explanation. Um, but on the other hand, I was really, I was very surprised two and a half years ago to get to that place um, because I was still living with the ex-gay narrative that this was just something that, you know, because you and I have always been friends. You and I have always had a, a tremendous amount of intimacy. When we sit and we talk, we just are able to flow in that um, but like you said, it wasn't that way necessarily in the bedroom. But the problem was was that when you came to me and you told me that, this was a whole new paradigm. It was like I went to sleep in one country and I woke up in another. I didn't know the language. I didn't know where I fit. I didn't know how to behave in the culture. And this is just what was going on in me. I got angry. I was pretty mad for a while. I was, I was pissed at you. <laughs> and... Um, You know, the first time I heard that term mixed orientation marriage was when I realized that that was actually describing us. And that was very difficult for me to deal with. Um, I I, I began to have to learn all kinds of other language that I really, frankly, didn't want to have to learn. This This was an annoyance. This was a problem. And though it was explaining something, on the other hand, it was it was very difficult for a couple of months there. Um, getting through it, I wondered what it meant for me as a woman. I wondered what it meant for me is in terms of our marriage. I wondered if I even fit in this new paradigm, and I was angry. But then, 
my natural my natural tendency is to be a peacemaker. That's how I fit in, I fit in the world, and I didn't feel like making peace, and so that was different too. I I just um, we had to have some very hard conversations that were very difficult, and hard conversations are tough for somebody of my personality to start with, but but we had them because we were darn well going to have them, and so we did we did have those conversations. And I began, as the anger began to subside, I began to understand that there was a lot of things underneath the anger. There was a lot of insecurity of me. Boy, this brought up lots of questions for me. Uh, there was a, there, there, I just felt off balance and off kilter. And it took a while to regain that balance. And I think that how the Lord did that was first of all, I began observing Jack. Jack mentioned that particular pastor who had gotten on stage, and Jack had gone to that pastor immediately and began talking to him uh, about all of this. And you always invited me into those conversations. You were always very honest and wanted me to be part of this process. For the first little bit, I didn't want to because of my anger, but eventually I did start becoming part of that process with you, and you and I began seeing him together, we, and, that, and that was good to get that third party in there beginning to talk to us about that. And during that time, my heart began to soften, and I began to see the levels of shame that Jack really had and how much he was going after God. He became so desperate for God, he started getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning every morning, which I thought was just nuts. I still think it's nuts. But it was just, uh, it was just a beautiful thing that he did. And, and he did it because he was driven in desperation to God. And how was he going to begin to get, how was God going to begin to work through these levels of shame? And I don't think it was until I was sitting with you and Brad that I began to understand really that whole layer. And my heart really, um, it really began to melt. And I say there, was, there were really two keys for me finding my footing so that enough so that I can stand here and be with you and talking to you about this. Um, the first key was that the Lord really started teaching me about covenant. And there's a lot there. It's really deep and it's very rich. All that God has for covenant and all that he means by that word and and. and it is part of why he gave his life is for covenant and what marriage really means and what the purpose of marriage is. And I hope we, I'm not going to get into all of that right now because it's, it's very deep. It's something I hope we're able to get to at some point. But at this point, um, I would just say that that gave me a different paradigm, that it wasn't about sex. It wasn't about attraction. It wasn't about, it was about what God had brought together. And we did have that. We did have covenant and we did have union. And that, that we've always had that part right. Um, and I think the second thing that I started to realize was just how much shame that you had been carrying. And in the process of God soothing me with a new understanding of covenant, he was also beginning to break my heart. He began to break my heart because I realized that I had been, it's easy to level accusations at the church of being uncaring and apathetic toward the LGBTQ community, but I had began to realize that I had been part of that, that I was apathetic, that I was uncaring, and that I could easily enter into some really judgy banter, just bantering back and forth. But then I began to put Jack's name into some of those really uncaring comments that I had made, and that had a sting to it because I loved Jack so much. And I realized that um, 
that I had been part of that problem. And God began breaking my heart for this community. And I began realizing that for all the getting up and talking about the Great Commission that I had done, I really hadn't included this community as a legitimate part of the Great Commission. And I asked God to begin breaking my heart over that too, and he did. He did. There's a lot I can go into about that too. I, but during that time, I actually became aware of a survey conducted by the George Barna Research Group, and what they did is they got together a, a bunch of non-Christians and asked them some different questions. These were not Christ followers. And one of the questions they asked them was, when you hear the word Christian, what is the first thing that comes to mind? And the number one answer to that question was not, we know there are Christians by their love. The number one answer to that question was not Jesus. The number one question, answer to that question wasn't even religion. The number one answer that the non-Christians had when they heard the word Christian is they hate gays. Number one answer. And that was extremely convicting to me because although I wouldn't say I hated gays, I would say that my apathy was about the same thing as hatred. And my heart just began to break for that community. So. As, that was good. Thank you. Surprise, it made me cry. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mad anymore, by the way. <laughs> no, she's not mad. So let me ask you this final question. Okay. Are you satisfied? Did you get what you wanted? Well, that's a good question. Thank you for having the bravery to ask me that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have an answer in my notes. Either. Yeah, he doesn't have the answer in the notes. This is just fun, isn't it? Um, I would say that God does a real good job of matchmaking. I would say that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I got far more than I ever wanted. I feel known by you, and I feel loved by you. And I feel that the, I, I did write this down because I wanted to say it correctly. I feel that the marriage covenant that you and, sh and I share is deeply intimate and satisfying. And what you don't know that I have in my notes <laughs> is I'm going to answer the burning question of if we have sex. And the answer is yes, we do. And we have a lot of fun in the process because there's no more hiding anymore. There's no more shame. We enjoy one another. But I, and, and so, yeah, we do. It works out very, very well, especially when God is involved and, and, the, and the hiding is gone. Um, but I'm honestly going to tell you that what's more meaningful to me than that is that when I reread this quote from Tim Keller, that I'm still very much in love with you. And still, even these 25 years later, uh, into this marriage, um, I want to partner with you in this journey that we are now taking together to the throne. So, now I'm going to ask you, Jack, and I don't have your answer either, blank here, um, do you feel that you've gotten what you've wanted? Do you feel that you can stand up here and say that you have been true to yourself? Yes, I can. I would say yes. You know, 30 years ago, when I started following Jesus, my advice was, Just put Jesus first. 
and see what happens. Some of you know that scripture is from Matthew 6, 33. That says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. And that really is true. He does give you what you need. Now, there's probably steps along the way I thought, I'm not getting it fast enough, or I'm not getting it in the right timing. But that's the beauty of age, is to look back and say, that really did work out well. And I would say, I do have everything I need. I am very satisfied. I would not want to change my story. I like how we ended up. You know, the, when Jesus asked that very first question in John 1, when Jesus looked at those two potential disciples and he said, what do you want? They didn't answer him. They said, they said back to Jesus, where are you staying? They never answered his question. They just asked him another question. And I think that speaks a lot of humanness, that a lot of times when Jesus says to us, what do you want? Our answer is, we really don't know. I don't think I knew 30 years ago what I wanted. Oh, I had a bit of an idea of what I wanted that wasn't right. But I really didn't know what I wanted. I didn't really know what I truly desired. And I think that's the beautiful thing about Christ. And the beautiful thing of a good shepherd is he knows what you really want. And he says, just put me first and I'll lead you to where you need to go. Because when Jesus responded back to those two young men, when he said, what do you want? And they said, where are you staying? Jesus replied to them and said, come and see. And I just kind of wonder if that's Jesus' reply to all of us. When we're like, I have no idea what I want. I have no idea what I really need. I have no idea what I really desire. That he just says, come along and I'll show you really what you need. I think that is the message of Christianity. That's the message of following Christ. He just gives us this desire to follow him, and we're really not sure. But I think that's our testimony when as we grow older and that we can look back and say, yeah, he really is faithful. He really is a good shepherd. He did give me what I needed. Mm-hmm.